the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Next, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to catch him out in what he said. These came and said to him, Master, we know that you are an honest man, that you are not afraid of anyone, because human rank means nothing to you, and that you teach the way of God in all honesty. Is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Recognizing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Hand me a denarius and let me see it. They handed him one and he said to them, whose portrait is this? Whose title? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, pay Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God. And they were amazed at him. So we're told in this passage how the Pharisees came and they tried to catch him out in his speech so that they might bring some accusation against him. With this end in view, they asked him maliciously whether it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not. They were referring to the tax that all Jews had to pay to Rome which reminded them of their dependence on a foreign power. It wasn't a hefty amount, but it presented them with a problem of both a political and a moral nature. And the Jews were divided among themselves as to its binding force. And now they wanted our Lord to take sides letting everyone know whether he was in favour of this Roman tax or against it. And so, teacher, they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If our Lord were to say yes, they would be able to accuse him of recommending collaboration with the Roman power, a foreign domination, colonial, which the Jews hated because it was imposed on them by an invading force. If he answered no, they would be able to accuse him of rebelliousness against Pilate, the Roman authority, to come down either in favour of the tax or against it would mean that he would be telling them whether he approved of are rejected, the lawfulness of the politico-social situation in which the Jewish people found themselves. Whatever he said, he would appear either to sympathize and collaborate with the occupying power 
are to encourage the latent rebelliousness of the Jews, which was never very far from the surface. Later on, they were to bring an accusation against him, saying with a falseness that would be only too obvious, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And so on this occasion, our Lord, who knew the hypocrisy of their question, said to them, bring me a coin and let me look at it. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And our Lord amazed them by the simplicity and at the same time the depth of his answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This our Lord is also making calling for every follower of his to be an exemplary citizen. There's a body of teaching of the church that is called the social teaching of the church. One of the most beautiful bodies of teaching that we have. Unfortunately, relatively unknown. But almost every pope in the last 100 years has produced a social encyclical, giving ideas and criteria about how social problems could be solved in a Christian way. And also encouraging lay people in the middle of the world to get particularly involved in solving those problems, promoting the dignity of every human person. A number of years ago, in a certain country, there was a constitution that was being formulated and 35 people were selected from different areas of society, an uneven number, so that if there was a vote, the uneven number would carry the vote. And at one stage, they were discussing what concept about social good to insert into the Constitution. And there were two particular ideas up for grabs. One was to insert the greatest good for the greatest majority, or to insert the term the common good. Now, the greatest good for the greatest majority sounds very democratic and sounds very good. But what happens to the minorities? Whereas the common good is a Thomistic concept based on Aristotle that talks about the well-being of each individual person. It's a very Christian concept. And on this issue, the house was divided. And one person was there to cast the final vote and spoke before voting. And in that country, there was a small Muslim population. But the Muslim representative had voted in favor of the idea of the greatest good for the greatest majority. And so this person very politely, with great respect, said to this Muslim leader, your honor, if we insert the phrase, the greatest good for the greatest majority, and the majority Catholic population in this country decide to kill, kill all the Muslims, well, constitutionally, they will be okay. And so the Muslim representative immediately said, okay, common good. 
it was a very good example of how one person with good ideas, Christian ideas and good doctrine, at a very key moment and a very key organization, could have a huge influence on the future development of the country and on the safeguarding of the dignity of each individual person, irrespective of their politics, of their beliefs, their religion, whatever. And so when our Lord is asked this question, he doesn't evade the question. But by his answer, he expresses this in its truest terms. The state should not elevate itself to the divine level. And the church should not take sides in temporal affairs, which are constantly changing and which are of no more than relative importance. Christ does not give particular solutions to specific problems, which may have many different solutions, open to the freedom of men. And that's the role of the church also. Christ gives criteria, but the application of those criteria are left to individual persons. And so by replying as he did, he showed his opposition as much to the Pharisees' widespread error of the day about a messianic mission that was political as he did to the error of the Roman state or of any states interfering in religious matters. And so by his answer, our Lord clearly established two separate and distinct spheres of competence. And so Gaudium et Spes of the Second Vatican Council says the political community and the church are autonomous and independent of each other in their own fields. Nevertheless, both are devoted to the personal vocation of man, though under different titles. And so the church has not been given the mission of finding specific solutions for temporal matters. Her role is particularly spiritual. In this way, she follows Christ by declaring that his kingship is not from the world, expressly refused to be constituted judge in the realm of earthly affairs. He tells people who constituted me a judge over you. Go and solve it yourselves. And so as Christians, we shouldn't fall into the mistake which Christ was so careful to avoid of uniting the gospel message, which is universal, to a particular political system, Caesar. The church transmits truth, values. The application of those values is left up to individual men. There's a famous phrase of John Paul II when he landed in the United States of America. I think it might have been going to a youth World Youth Day in Denver, and standing beside the President of the United States, he said, there is no true democracy when there is no democracy for the unborn. Powerful criteria. So we should avoid any situation 
are those who cannot give a wholehearted allegiance to a particular system or party or to Caesar, may be obliged to experience understandable difficulties in accepting a message which has as its ultimate end eternal life. The church's mission, which continues throughout time, the redemptive work of Christ, is one of leading men to their supernatural and eternal destiny. And so the church is not a socio-political pressure group. Her just and necessary concern with problems that pertain to human society is all derived from her spiritual mission and has to stay within the bounds of that mission. And so it's for us as Christians, placed in the very centre of society, with all the rights and duties that brings with it, to find those solutions to temporal problems. That's part of our Christian mission. And hence it's very important that all through our life we try to grow in our formation, to have more knowledge, more ability, more criteria to solve those problems. It's a very good thing in your spiritual reading sometime to read some of those social encyclicals like Rerum Novarum, Solicitudo Re Socialis of John Paul II, Centesimus Annus is another one of John Paul II. We have to work to form around us a world which becomes ever more human and ever more Christian. A civilization of love and a culture of life, John Paul II said. You have to do this by being exemplary citizens who demand all their rights and equally know how to fulfill all their duties towards society. Sometimes in the world we hear a lot about people talking about rights. We don't hear too much about duties and responsibilities. And here comes the well, the duty and the obligation, the encouragement, the invitation by the church to get involved in national and international organizations that are directing the future of society so that we can place Christian criteria there, try and build a world where the poor are better cared for with housing, with electricity, with water, with food. There is good employment. All these issues have to concern us. And so wherever we are, we have to look around us and see, well, who are the people around me that God wants me to do something for? In each neighborhood, there's somebody. There might be poor people. There might be unemployed people. There might be elderly people who need a helping hand or a listening ear. But there's always somebody. And the way that Christians act in public life then it's not just limited to the fulfillment of certain legal norms, what's laid down by law. We're called to have an influence. An Episcopal conference has written the difference 
between the legal order and the moral criteria governing our own conduct will sometimes oblige us to go even further than the law demands or to behave in a way that differs from what is asked for by the law's strictly juridical criteria. The Christian has to go the extra mile. We have to be the good Samaritan. We have to think out of the box. We have to think of the future of society, the future of the family, the common good of each individual person in society. Notice how in this pontificate, Pope Francis has gone out of his way to try and help refugees. Shortly after his election, he went to Lampedusa, an island in the south of Italy that probably nobody in the world ever heard of, where the vast majority of the refugees from the Middle East were coming. But he knew about it. And he went there personally, the head of the Catholic Church. Where else do you find a head of state doing something like that? He also traveled to Myanmar, 1% Catholic, as an expression of solidarity with some of the people there. It's not exactly a country where many heads of state travel. And so we see great example in the things that he has done in this area. We could ask ourselves, am I known at work? Whatever my job might be. As someone who does far more, for love of God and of men, and people are strictly obliged to do in terms of hours of work or dedication or interest or sincere concern for people and their problems. A couple of years ago, we organized a Christmas party as we do every so often for kids in a poor area here in Nairobi. And we got five or six or 10 young guys last year in school to do most of the organizing. And one of those kids was an orphan. He would stay in the boarding school during school time. And in holiday time, he was looked after by an aunt of his, again, in a very poor area of the city. And he happened to tell this aunt that he was involved in organizing this party for poor kids. And his aunt was a lady who sold vegetables at the side of the road. And when she heard that he was involved in this party for kids, well, she got very excited. And she produced three huge bags of sweets for those kids. I can't remember too much about that particular party because there have been many. But I don't think I'll ever forget that generosity and that kindness of that good lady and that reaction of hers, which went far beyond could have been expected from her, if anything at all. And our Lord says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He made a distinction between those duties that relate to society and those that refer to God. But he didn't in any way want to impose on his disciples what would amount to a double existence. We're not one person when we're doing certain jobs and a different person when we're doing something else. There's a, a unity of life that has to exist there. Man is one with just one heart and one soul, with his virtues and his defects, 
all of which have a bearing on his behavior. And in public life, just as in private life, the Christian must take his inspiration from the doctrine and the following of Jesus Christ. And that inevitably will make his behavior more human and still more noble. Gaudium et Spes of the Second Vatican Council has said the church has always proclaimed the just autonomy of temporal realities. Understood, of course, in the sense that created things and society itself are endowed with their own laws and values. But if by the terms the autonomy of earthly affairs is meant that material being does not depend on God, and that man can use it as if it had no relation to its creator, then the falsity of such a claim will be obvious to anyone who believes in God. Without the creator, there can be no creature. So then society becomes inhuman and difficult to live in. And down through history, there are many examples of this. The Christian chooses their political, social, and professional options according to their innermost convictions. And what he gives to the society in which he lives is a true vision of man and of society. Because only Christian doctrine offers us the complete truth about man, about his dignity, and about the eternal destiny for which he was created. However, there are many who on occasions would like Christians to live a double life. One life in their temporal and public activity, and the other in their life of faith. Even affirm by means of sectarian or discriminatory words or actions that there is incompatibility between one's civic duties and the obligations that following Christ brings with it. St. Thomas More gives us a great example of living out our faith in all situations. He was even willing to lose his head over it, and so he's been lifted up onto the altars that heroic witness. He can be a great inspiration in our life to carry our Christian principles and beliefs into every sphere of human activity. Many years ago, there was a lady who was nominally Catholic, I think from San Francisco, who was going to, up, to go for the presidency of the United States. And she said she was against abortion in her private life, but when she entered into the political arena, she couldn't impose her views on other people. And very quickly, Cardinal O'Connor of New York spoke out saying that that's not valid. If you're a Catholic, you're a Catholic all the way in the political arena and out of the political arena. And you're not imposing your views on other people. You're just defending the principles of the sacredness of human life. And so we try to bring our values everywhere, the fragrance of Christ. The Pharaoh St. Maria, number 301, says as Christians, 
we must proclaim with our words and with the testimony of our coherent lives that it's not true that there is opposition between being a good Catholic and serving civil society faithfully. In the same way, there's no reason why the church and the state should clash when they proceed with the lawful exercise of their respective authorities in fulfillment of the mission God has entrusted to them. Those who affirm the contrary, said St. Jose Maria, are liars. Yes, liars. They are the same people who honour a false liberty and ask us Catholics to do them the favour of going back to the catacombs, of retreating into silence. Our testimony in the middle of the world has to be manifested by a deep unity of life. That means we don't get involved with certain behaviours or we don't cooperate in certain things that we know are wrong, even if everybody else is doing that, even if it means we lose our job, even if we're the only person in the whole world who thinks that way. We have an obligation before God to do what is right. Love of God has to lead us to carry out faithfully all our obligations as citizens, to pay our taxes, to vote conscientiously, in seeking to bring about the common good. Part of that is talking to our public representatives, letting them know how we think on certain issues, particularly issues that are key for the well-being of society, like the unborn or the elderly or other issues. It's one of the ways we have an influence. Failure to make our own opinion felt at whatever level, out of indifference or laziness or false excuses, by means of the ballot box or its equivalent, can be a fault against justice because it means neglecting some rights which, owing to the consequences of their virtual renunciation, may have de deleterious effects for other people. And that neglect can be serious if it means that by failing in our duty, we have contributed to the success within a professional body or in the governing body of the school of our, that our children attend and the political life of a country, of a candidate whose ideology is at variance with Christian principles. We have to use our power, our God-given power, our rights. John Paul has exhorted, exhorted us, be sure to live and infuse into temporal realities the sap of the faith of Christ aware that this faith does not destroy anything that is truly human, but rather strengthens, purifies, and elevates it. Bring that spirit, he says, to bear, and the attention you give to crucial problems in the sphere of the family by living and defending the insolubility of marriage and all the other values contained within it by fostering respect for all human life 
from the very moment of its conception. Bringing it to bear in the world of culture, of education, and of teaching. By choosing for your children a school in which the bread of Christian faith is presented to them. Be strong too, he says, and generous when you're called upon to contribute to the eradication of injustice and social and economic discrimination. When you're called upon to participate in the positive task of increasing and justly distributing earthly goods, bend every effort so that your laws and customs do not turn their back on the transcendent meaning of man and the moral aspects of life. And if we're to be better Christians, well, then our union with God is important. St. Augustine comments, and to God the things that are God's. Our Lord also stressed this aspect, although they did not expressly ask him concerning it. Caesar looks for his own likeness, give it to him. God looks for his own likeness, give it back to him. Do not cause Caesar to lose his coin because of you. Do not cause God to lose his coin among you. And so the whole of our life is God's, our works, our concerns, our joys. Everything of ours is his. Especially those moments, like these moments of prayer that we dedicate exclusively to him. Being good Christians, well, you just want to be good citizens. Because our faith urges us all the time to be good students. To be good mothers who are capable of denying themselves. And whose faith and love give them the strength to bring up their family in the best possible way. To be good and fair-minded businessmen. Christ's example leads us all to be hardworking, warm-hearted, cheerful and optimistic. It urges us to do more than we're strictly obliged to do. I was impressed the other day there was a guy who was checking the air in the tires of the car that I use. And instead of just checking the air, he told me that you, you need to change the back tires to the front tires to change them around a bit. It's a small thing, but it was a little observation. He didn't have to tell me that, but obviously he went the extra mile and said it with a cheerful smile. I remember that fellow. as an example of doing that extra little bit. And so this spirit teaches us to live loyalty towards our spouse if we're married, towards the firm we work for, towards the party or group or team to which we belong. Love of God, if it's true love, is the guarantee of love for men and shows itself in deeds. A decree went out from the Emperor Augustus, enjoining that all the inhabitants of Israel should be registered. Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem. We're told in the furrow 322, has it ever occurred to you 
And the Lord made use of the prompt acceptance of a law to fulfill his prophecy. Love and respect the ways of behaving by which you may live in amity with other people. Have no doubt either that your loyal submission to duty can be the means for others to discover Christian integrity, which is the fruit of divine love, and to find God. When we look at how Joseph and Mary fulfilled the law by going to Bethlehem, we can get example from them of how we have to fulfill our civic duties in all the little things of each day. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations that you have communicated to me during this meditation. I ask your help to put them into practice. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.